Hello, my name is Mallory Jenna Robinson. Join me on A Hateful Homicide, a true crime podcast dedicated to telling the stories regarding the murders of transgender, gender non-binary, and gender diverse community members in the United States and abroad. This is A Hateful Homicide. 911, what's your emergency? Yeah. transgender woman has been shot and killed in North Baltimore, Alpha. In the U.S., trans women of color have a life expectancy of just 35 years. This happens on a daily. Another one of my friends got killed right up the street from here. These cases are true. The victims are real and their voices matter. This is A Hateful Homicide. The murder of Jennifer Lade, Saturday, October 11th, 2014, Alamfato, Philippines.
symptomatic of what I saw happening here in the Philippines. It's Saturday, October 11th of 2014, in the city of Alangapo, Philippines. It's where 26-year-old trans-Filipino woman, Jennifer Wade, is residing and hanging out with a really good friend of hers by the name of Barbie. The two, both survival sex workers, was at the Ambiance Disco Bar in Alangapo, where around 10 p.m. that night, Jennifer would encounter Joseph Scott Pemberton, a 19-year-old U.S. Marines from New Bedford, Massachusetts. He was on deployment in the Philippines when he encountered the beautiful, beautiful trans-Filipino woman. The two would go back to the Sezon Lodge. And around 11 p.m. on October 11th of 2014, a scream can be heard throughout the lodge. It's Barbie. She has discovered her friend, best friend, Jennifer Lade, in the tub, drowned. The police is immediately notified. And one of the things that they want to know is what has happened to Jennifer. So Barbie tells the detectives that Jennifer had came to the Sozone Lodge with a guy by the name of Scott. He was a U.S. Marine, um, tall, described as a six foot one, uh, white male, early 20s. And so that was pretty much what Barbie had to go off of. She knew that Jennifer and Scott had went into room one of the Sozone Lodge that evening around 10.30 p.m. And she remembered hearing a little bit of muffle um, from the room because she was in a room with another Marine. And when she heard that, um, she didn't think much of it. She thought maybe there was just a little bit of rough housing in the room. But then um, she hears the door slams. And the next thing, um, her, I guess, gut, spidey instincts told her to go to Jennifer's room. And when she walked in, what she would discover would be one of the most shocking and heartbreaking scenes that she could have ever imagined. It was Jennifer face forward in the bathtub of the Zelzon Lodge completely devastated and blindsided by the fact that she had just seen her best friend an hour ago and now an hour later she's deceased floating in the bathtub what happened and again that is what the detectives wanted to know my audience thank you all so much for being here for the season two finale of a hateful homicide an officer and a gentleman this case my audience garnered so much attention internationally not only was because of the fact that it involved a u.s marine murdering a trans-Filipino woman in the Philippines, but then also the different legislative acts that are in place between the United States and the Philippines. For example, when this hateful homicide of Jennifer Lotte happened on that Saturday of October 11, 2014 at 11 p.m., this was the second reported criminal case involving a United States Marine in the Philippines under what's known as the Philippines-United States Visiting Forces Agreement. And this was the first homicide that went under the Philippines and the U.S.'s Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. And so what really happened from this case is that you see the sequence of events that begin to unfold after Jennifer's hateful homicide. The detectives immediately went to the base, the Marine base where Scott Pemberton was, and he was immediately arrested and brought in. He does admit to committing the hateful homicide of Jennifer Lade. And detectives wanted to know why. Well, according to Scott, it was because he had discovered that Jennifer, after engaging in sex, was transgendered. 
He said when he met her at the ambiance disco bar at 10 p.m., just an hour before, that he was under the presumption or assumption that she was a cisgendered female. And when that was not the case, he reacted in such a way that required him to grab her by the back of her head, fill the tub up with water, put her head into the tub until she was no longer breathing, leaving her with her body, again, outward and her head in, in a tub full of water. The detectives arrested Scott on scene and he was immediately taken in to custody. Well, the United States Marines had another intentions. They did not believe that Scott should be detained in the Philippines because he was a U.S. Marine. And this would become a source of conflict between the United States and the then president, Rodrigo Duterte. He would be a huge, huge pivotal piece of this case, my audience, as we continue to go through um, this. This case, again, occurred around 2014. And between 2014 and 2020, there's going to be these series of events that we're going to go through. But again, I want to go back first and really discuss a little bit about the incident, as well as who is Jennifer. And again, like I said, she checks into the hotel around 10.30 p.m. with Scott Pemberton. He's a 19-year-old cisgendered white male from New Bedford, Massachusetts. He's on deployment there. The two did partake in sex, oral, and anal. There are condoms found in the room one of the Cezanne Lodge, which matches the DNA to Scott Pemberton. So again, all of this is pointing to Scott Pemberton being the killer, as well as him also confessing to killing Jennifer Lade. But his reasoning was, as so many times my audience, we have witnessed the trans panic defense. And this is what he and his attorneys would use through this copious, copious amount of court battles and international policies and all of these things have come into place to really garner the attention of this case. What you heard in the beginning was a clip from CNN Philippines speaking to PJ Naval, an amazing Filipino um, activist as well as filmmaker who was in uh, the Philippines at the time of the hateful homicide and really wanted to highlight this community of transness and beautifulness and highlight Jennifer's story in a film called Call Her Ghana. And so this film is out as you heard it's been released and won multiple film awards and you can definitely check it out on youtube and other streaming platforms to really learn a little bit more about jennifer in that regard so again kudos to pj naval as we need more filmmakers to continue to tell our stories but again jennifer's dna was also on the condoms and so when the autopsy of jennifer's body was ran um, just within a few hours. So at this point, it's 11 p.m. and her body's taken out, taken to the to the coroners. Her family has not been notified yet. Um, one of the pieces of this case that's really pivotal is to give you a context is that Jennifer was very close to her family, her mother, her sister, Mary Lou. She also was engaged at the time to a German nationalist by the name of Mark Susselbeck. And so she really had a foundation of best friend by the name of Barbie. So everything was looking up for Jennifer. Her and Mark had even uh, planned on going back to Germany and living there and building a life. And they were going to adopt children and she was going to be a stay-at-home mom, according to Barbie and her sister, Mary Lou. So there was a lot of growth and hope for Jennifer. And then so around four days later, after the hateful homicide, around that Wednesday, October 15th of 2014, Jennifer Lade's sister, Mary Lou Lade, filed a murder complaint against Joseph Scott Pemberton, at this point, who was still and the city of Alangapo. And once he had, you know, went through the whole initial interrogation and he admitted that he had 
committed the hateful homicide. This officer and a gentleman, this Lance Corporal of the United States Marines, who's supposed to protect and serve, um, decided to take matters into his own hand and snuff out the life of this beautiful 26-year-old Filipino woman who had her whole life and goals ahead of her. Jennifer, born November 4th, 1987, in the state, excuse me, the country of the Philippines, Described as bubbly, outgoing, bodacious, she stood in her truth as early as 19 and began her gender journey. Unfortunately, like so many of us in spaces that are discriminatory, Jennifer met that, not necessarily with her family, but certainly when it came to employment opportunities. And when this was the case, Jennifer turned to survival sex work. Her and other trans women alike in the Philippines, this was a practice that they would do. And the ambiance disco bar is one of those stumping grounds where she could go, feel safe, affirmed. The managers knew her, they loved her, they knew that, you know, she was there to meet gentlemen suitors. Her fiance, just in case you're wondering, was also aware of her sex work and was totally okay with that, as they were still making preparations to get her to Germany. And so this was a piece where it was all tied in together and Mary Lou wanted to make sure that her younger sister, Jennifer, was gonna get justice. And so she again filed that murder complaint. Oh, two days later, that Friday, October 17th of 2014, the Philippine National Police, PNP, and Regional Crime Laboratory Office officially released a report confirming that Laude died due to asphyxia by drowning. The Department of Foreign Affairs, DFA, delivered a subpoena for Pimbledon to the U.S. Embassy in Manila, Philippines. This is the major capital of the country, the Philippines, the island, excuse me. And so Pemberton reportedly remained on board the USS Peleliu, the ship where his group was assigned to, which was docked at the Subic Bay port. And so again, around October 18th, um, Barbie, who was again the best friend of Jennifer, who actually heard some of the, the hateful homicide occurring in the other room, um, she was immediately placed into witness protection because of the fact that she had also been in a sexual relationship with another Marine. So we have to take into account all of these sequence events from that Saturday, October 11th, to we're going into that Friday of October 18th, a series of events of within six days, seven days have already happened, my audience, of just really trying to get justice for Jennifer. One of the reasons why they put Barbie into Witness Protection Program was to make sure that she would be able to have the opportunity to speak one day and testify against Joseph Scott Pemberton on what she heard, as well as the fact that she was the one who discovered Jennifer's body. So there was definitely a need to make sure that they kept her safe. And that's exactly what they did. Then we go into October 20th of 2014. Mark Susselbeck, the fiance of Jennifer Lade, arrives in Alangapo. He is completely devastated after Jennifer's sister, Mary Lou, and mother had completely reached out to him to notify him of his fiance's hateful homicide. One of the things that was also um, included in this hateful homicide when Mark got there was just really trying to understand his relationship with Jennifer. And one of the things that he highlighted was that he loved her. The two had been together for almost five years. He had came to the Philippines to see her and visit with her and share space. And they really seemed to have this deep connection and love. He proposed to her in Valentine's Day of 2014, and the two was hoping to get married by the spring of 2015. So that was a lot of great things that was happening. 
Around October 21st of 2014, Pemberton was a no-show at the preliminary investigation at the Alangapo City Prosecutor's Office. His lawyer, Rowena Garcia Flores, as well as the attorney that was then hired, Virgie Garcia, for the family of Jennifer Lade, said that Pemberton was not compelled by the subpoena to attend the hearing, but was asked to submit a counter affidavit. What this means is that Joseph Scott Pemberton, under this agreement that he has with the United States and the Philippines, that he did not have to necessarily turn himself in in that moment. But he could provide a counter affidavit explaining a little bit more in detail exactly what transpired on Saturday, October 11, 2014. So around October 22nd of 2014, Pemberton was then finally transferred via helicopter to the Joint United States Military Advisory Group inside the Armed Forces of the Philippines facility in Camp Angrenano of the Quezon City. The fiancé of Jennifer Lade, Mark Sesselbeck, and her older sister, Mary Lou Lade, climbed a perimeter fence in the camp in an attempt to confront Pemberton. Around this same time, Barbie is being asked to testify at that hearing headed by the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. This occurred around 12.45 p.m., and it actually ended up occurring on the USS Peleliu, which after that would then go on and take off to Okinawa, Japan. The memorial service for Jennifer Lade occurred on October 24th, 2014, just 13 days after her hateful homicide. She will be laid to rest at the Heritage Memorial Park in the city of Alangapo. So Jennifer has now been laid to rest. Now justice for Jennifer begins. October 26th of 2014, the Bureau of Immigration prevented Cecilbuck from leaving the country due to impending deportation for undesirability, meaning that this, the island of the Philippines had a little bit more of talking to to Mark. One of the things that had been posed by Rowena Garcia Flores, the attorney for Joseph Scott Pemberton, was that maybe Mark had, you know, somehow been involved in this, like really deflecting from from Scott, who had already admitted to killing, you know, Jennifer. So it was that was just a little baffling. But one of the things that was that they did was to make sure that. Susselbeck could not leave. So he was he remained in the Philippines for quite a while. Um, and then he finally was able to leave on November 1st. Um, he left the country after his appeal for voluntary deportation was granted. And he promised to return despite being barred from entering the Philippines again. You know, we ask ourselves, my audience, why is it that Mark Susselbeck, the fiance of the victim, is being treated this way, right? He's been you know, told to stay here and then he's been banned from the Philippines. But yet Joseph Scott Pemberton is just kind of being able to do come and go as he please on the USS Peleliu off of it. So we see this this really differentiation between the two, um, how they both are treated. You have the fiance of the victim and then you have the suspect and accused who has also committed, uh, um, confessed to committing this hateful homicide. And so we have to, again, unpack all of this and really try to get an understanding of Jennifer. Again, born in November 4th of 1987, she is fun-loving, exciting. She just knew who she was in life. She was only like five foot three, 130 pounds, super sweet, lovable. Mark, who was about 15 years her senior, just adored her and loved her. And again, like I said, she has this great, great support system. But of course, like the justice for Jennifer would take years and years. 
2015, when Scott was finally brought to trial around August 3rd of 2015, one of the things that, again, he utilized was this trans panic defense. He wanted to know that, or excuse me, he stated in his affidavit during the trial was that when he met Jennifer, he was under the assumption that she was cisgendered. The two hit it off. They went back to the Still Zone Lodge. And when they had sex, initially it was oral. He admitted that a condom was used and um, he did have an orgasm. And as a result, um, that is where we found some of the semen in the condom that was placed inside the toilet. Then him and Jennifer would partake in a couple more sexual acts. One been anal and the other been another round of oral. So three condoms total with sperm was found inside of the room at the Cezanne Lodge. That was irrefutable. There was no denying that his DNA was at the scene of the crime. But one of the things that he admitted to in his trial around August 3rd of 2015 was that when he asked Jennifer, could they partake in frontal intercourse, vaginal intercourse under the assumption, according to him, that she was cisgendered, he discovered that she was transgendered and when he discovered that he reacted and he said that he calmly got up he went and ran um, some water in the bathtub and that moment knowing that he was going to kill her um, but she's just you know sitting there and, and explaining what's going on um, about her gender identity and before she knew it he grabbed her again by the back of the head takes her to the tub holds her head underneath the water according to the autopsy report she was in that water for at least seven minutes my audience and so what happens is is that you have these series of events that have happened you have joseph scott pemberton saying that he has done all of these things as a result of jennifer not disclosing her gender identity therefore this trans panic defense according to his attorney rorina garcia flores this should make him eligible to be exonerated and ultimately acquitted for these charges. And this is where this long legal, you know, battle, litigious battle would happen from 2015 until 2020. You have this five-year legal battle by audience between the family of Jennifer Lade and the family of Joseph Scott Pemberton. Scott's mom talks in a documentary, a separate documentary about just her son and, and just knowing that um, he must have, he, he was a, a sweet kid. He would never hurt anyone. He was only 19 at the time of the hateful homicide, putting his birth year around 1990, uh, 1995. And so this young 19-year-old kid who had just graduated high school a year before out of New Bedford, Massachusetts, had grew up in this kind of like, um, you know, monolithic enclave of cis heteronormativity. He grew up with a mom, dad, brother. And so that was what he knew. He also had a, a, a partner, a girlfriend back home that he was close to. Um, she did um, admit that she knew that Scott would get with other women while he was away. And she was okay with that because she knew at the end of the day that he would come back to her. But one of the things that was really important for his fiance to point out is his sexuality. She really wanted um, individuals in that documentary to know that he identified completely as heterosexual. One of the things that Jennifer's attorney, as well as Barbie, the friend who testified, was that they knew that they were trans, um, that Joseph Scott Pemberton, as well as her partner, who she was with, who was also a U.S. Marine and a friend of Scott Pemberton's, 
both knew that the girls were trans. And so, you know, this this whole idea of this trans panic defense wasn't really correlated. Well, at the end of it, you know, he was ultimately around March 29th, 2016. <sighs> they sentenced Joseph Scott Pemberton to six to 12 years by virtue of his motion for reconsideration. So on March 29th of 2016, he was sentenced to six to 12 years in prison, even though he had used a transpanic defense, even though there was this whole legal battle, by 2016, he was convicted and he was gonna be serving his time in the Philippines. And that really should have been the conclusion of this case when we think about getting justice for Jennifer. But as we know, so many times, the justice for our victims in these cases, sometimes they take a little longer or sometimes they don't happen. But Jennifer's family was determined to make sure that justice was served for their sister and daughter. So now we go into the year of 2017, my audience, is April 10th. The Court of Appeals affirmed the conviction of Pemberton for killing Jennifer Lade. His plea to reverse the guilty verdict was junked because his defense lacked merit. He was also ordered to pay Lade's family $75,000 as a civil indemnity as moral damages. This was an increase from the initial $50,000 that Pemberton was ordered to pay Lottie's family. So not only was he, you know, he had a criminal case, but then his uh, Jennifer's family also filed a civil suit and won. And so we go into this case and we just think about like how all of these things unfolded. And, you know, from 2017 on until September 23rd of 2020, Joseph Scott Pemberton remained in Alangapo, Philippines, detained for the hateful homicide of Jennifer Lade. This officer and gentleman, this Lance Corporal, 19-year-old cisgendered white male from New Bedford, Massachusetts, who was described as this all-American good guy, would go and drown her in the bathtub by holding her head underneath the water for seven minutes, my audience. If we thought that that was the end, right after his appeals were denied, the president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duarte, had some other intentions in mind. Remember, I began the episode by talking about the fact that there was these U.S. and Philippine relations. And even though Joseph Scott Pemberton had been convicted and placed in court, uh, excuse me, placed in prison in the Philippines, there was still a lot of legal battles behind the scenes, right? His attorney is still appealing. They're also trying to find other legal loopholes with legislations and policies are in place internationally. So these things become important, especially when the president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duarte, decides to pardon. That's right, my audience. He decides to pardon Joseph Scott Pemberton on September 23rd of 2020, basically over, you know, just saying that he served his time and he is free to return to the United States. And that is exactly what Joseph Scott Pemberton does. He arrives back into the United States, back in New Bedford, Massachusetts, around October of 2020, where he still remains to this day. But one of the things that I want to continue to is to also give you this context of what this film, a, a film called uh, A Girl Called Ghana, how this really impacted this whole community. Telling Jennifer's story has impacted the entire island of the Philippines, the trans community, the LGBTQ plus community in the Philippines got into the streets. Her attorney, Virgie, was 
instrumental in making sure that this case would not be swept under the rugs, that it garnered the attention that it deserved. And, you know, and when we think about timing, though Jennifer was murdered on October 11th of 2014, the hateful homicide that happened also prompted this film, again, A Girl Called Ghana, which, as you've heard, has received multiple awards telling Jennifer's story. So if Joseph Scott Pemberton thought that he was going to silence Jennifer, he was wrong because she was so loved that now she has a documentary, an award-winning documentary that tells her story and really gives this victim the voice that she deserves. And I just want to take a little bit and give you all a little bit more about this um, this film. So that's what, again, filmmaker PJ Revolve would go and do and highlight these experiences of the trans community. And this has been really pivotal, my audience, as we just, you know, go through this case and really understand who Jennifer was and what she meant to the community of Alangapo. Jennifer did not deserve to be murdered. And the reality is, is that Joseph Scott Pemberton knew she was transgender. As you heard, PJ Raval said, there's no disputing who committed the hateful homicide. But I think what we have to also understand is this idea of the transpanic defense. We've covered this in a few episodes from season one to season two, especially with this being our finale. So again, this transpanic defense really just, I want to give you all an idea of what that actually entails. 
So this became an initial defense that some of you all may know as the gay panic defense. And what this is, is a legal strategy in which a defendant claims to have acted in a state of violence or temporary insanity, committing assault and or murder because of unwanted advances due to gender identity or sexuality. And so this has been a defense that has been utilized since the early 90s, almost 30 years now, where individuals will commit these hateful homicides. They were proclaimed to either have been coerced, cornered, trapped, and then now they have had to defend themselves, right? That's where the defense piece comes in. So now they have to defend themselves from, again, as you heard in the in the audio, a bias because they have their own biases with this. And the reality is, is that Joseph Scott Pemberton wanted to explore his 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 life with and what that looked like with Jennifer, and when that came into question, I think the reality sunk in for him that he had enjoyed himself with a trans woman, and what was that going to look like going forward? The friend, right? Also, according to Barbie, knew that they were trans, so it's not like he had to worry about his friend saying anything. But I think the overall arching theme was the bigger picture, which he was like, if my fiance finds out, if the U.S. Marines find out, which again, we know in the United States Marines and Navy, that the whole armed forces, it's been very back and forth legally in the United States and other spaces on trans you know, rights, as well as LGBTQ rights as a whole. And so by this time you have this 19 year old kid who, not really a kid, 19 year old grown man who, made the adult and conscious decision to murder this woman. He consciously went to the tub, filled it with water to drown her while she was explaining her life to him. Like just really, you know, taking a few minutes. And he even says that like where she was, you know, just having a conversation once they were finished with sex about her gender identity and just her journey a little bit while he was running the water. Uh, He had given her the impression that he was going to take a bath. So that's why she wasn't alarmed by what he was doing because they had just finished having sex. But um, as we know, that was not what he was doing. He was intending to drown her. And that is what he did on October 11th of 2014 at 11 p.m. And so again, this uh, transpanic defense is just one of those things that we have to continue to think about. And one of the things I also wanted to um, highlight too was what I mentioned earlier, which was this enhanced defense cooperation agreement. This is an agreement between the United States and the Philippines intended to bolster the U.S.-Philippine alliance. You heard me, alliance. And so the agreement allows the United States to rotate troops into the Philippines for extended stays and allow the United States to build and operate facilities on the Philippine bases for both American and Philippine forces. The U.S. is not allowed to establish any permanent military bases, but it also gives Philippines personnel access to American ships and planes, which is one of the reasons why they were able to go onto the USS Peleliu. That was one of the reasons why they were able to take him off of the USS Peleliu and bring him into Manila to, you know, further interrogate him, which is uh, when I mentioned going through that chronological timeline for Justice for Jennifer, uh, Mark Sesselbeck, her fiance, and her sister Mary Lou, literally tried to hop over the fence of the facility where Pimpleton was being escorted to in Manila to confront him about the hateful homicide. That is how, you know, they were determined. They were tenacious on getting justice for her. And to an extent, justice for Jennifer was served in the sense of that she did get a conviction in her case um, and that he did serve time. But unfortunately, 
justice was not completely served because again, on September 23rd of 2020, President of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, would go on and pardon uh, Joseph Scott Pemberton. And you can hear that now. That's right, my audience. This was on September 23rd of 2020 when President Rodrigo Duarte would go and state why he was granted pardon to Joseph Scott Pemberton to return to the United States. Again, he stated that Pemberton had been detained since 2016, convicted since 2017, and, um, you know, he served over three years at that point for the hateful homicide, according to um, prison guards. He was on good behavior. Um, he, he, you know, displayed good be- behavior. Welcome back, my audience. Thank you all so much for still tuning in with me. As I was saying that, you know, Joseph Scott Pemberton would be pardoned for good behavior in September 23rd of 2020. And so I want to share an audio with you regarding that process and just really pose a question um, based off of this audio. The Philippines has deported a U.S. Marine who was convicted of killing a transgender woman in 2014 after he was granted an absolute pardon by President Rodrigo Duterte in a move decried by activists as a mockery of justice. Lance Corporal Joseph Scott Pemberton boarded an American military aircraft bound for the United States on Sunday morning, a Bureau of Immigration spokeswoman said. Details of his flight arrangements had not been disclosed until after he left amid tight security arrangements. Pemberton was found guilty of killing Jennifer Laude in a hotel in Elongapo, outside a former U.S. Navy base six years ago. That case sparked debate over the U.S. military presence in its former colony. Presidential spokesman Harry Roque, who served as a lawyer in the prosecution of Pemberton, had said Duterte's decision to pardon the Marine may stem from his desire to get access to coronavirus vaccines. But the Philippine Health Ministry said that none of the U.S. vaccine makers the government is in talks with set any conditions. So that's my question for you, my audience. And again, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or even Anchor, do you all believe that President Rodrigo Duarte pardoned Joseph Scott Pemberton on September 23rd of 2020 so that way he could get support from the United States to receive COVID-19 vaccines? Let me know what you think. Please feel free to comment. There's a question posed on Spotify and Apple Podcasts again. And so I wanted to also, as we slowly get ready to conclude this case, I wanted to take a moment and share with you all the guilty 
verdict. So when Joseph Scott Pemberton was found guilty in 2016, um, and ultimately the, the appeals process and all that was finalized in 2017, I really want you all to hear that initial ruling and that process of what that looks like. And the reason why I want to share that with y'all is because of the fact that we have two different judicial systems. You have the United States as well as the Marines and their whole, um, you know, NCIS and military process, but then you also have the Philippines and their judicial system. And what does that look like for Joseph Scott Pemberton and how is that justice for Jennifer? And as I mentioned earlier in the first segment was that Jennifer, um, though there was justice in the sense of that he was convicted and sentenced, that sentence was only six to 12 years with him serving a maximum of 10. And so unfortunately, Scott was pardoned within three and a half years of his sentence. So he didn't even serve nowhere near half or even close to the maximum of that 10 years. But I did at least want to take you all back into that context of that timing um, back in 2016 when he was initially found guilty. Aggravating circumstance have been found to have attended the commission of the offense. The penalty shall be lowered by one degree pursuant to Article 64 of Paragraph 5 of the same code. The penalty of prison mayor is impossible considering that the two mitigating circumstances are to be taken into account in reducing the penalty by one degree and no other and no other modifying circumstances were shown to have attended the commission of the offense. Under the indeterminate sentence law, the minimum penalty shall be within the range of that which is next lower in degree, consisting of six, six years of prison correctional as minimum and twelve years of prison mayor as Wherefore, judgment is rendered, finding abuse, Lance Corporal Joseph Scott Pemberton guilty beyond reasonable doubt of the crime of homicide and sentencing him to suffer the indeterminate sentence of six years of prison correctional as minimum and 12 years of prison mayor as maximum with full credit for the period of his preventive imprisonment pursuant to Article 29, Revised Penal Code and ordering him to pay to the heirs of the late Jeffrey S. Laude, represented by Julita Papila, as follows. A. 50,000 pesos as civil indemnity, 4,320,000 pesos as damages for loss of earning capacity, 155,250 pesos as reimbursement for the weight, burial and other related expenses, and expenses as actual damages, and D. 50,000 pesos as moral damages, and E. 30,000 pesos as exemplary damages. Article 5, Section 10 of the Visiting Forces Agreement, entered into by the Philippines and the United States, provides the confinement or detention by Philippine authorities of United States personnel shall be carried out in facilities agreed on by appropriate Philippine and United States authorities. In the exchange of diplomatic notes between 
Department of Foreign Affairs and the Embassy of the United States of America, the Philippines and the United States entered into an agreement agreed on by appropriate Philippine and United States authorities. When the confinement or detention of a peacemember should be by Philippine authorities as provided in the visiting forces agreement, then he should be confined or detained in the new believing prison or in the facilities where national prisoners of the Republic of the Philippines are confined or detained under the Bureau of Corrections. The Bureau of Corrections is the agency under the Department of Justice that is charged with the custody and rehabilitation of national prisoners. It is provided under Presidential Decree Number 29 that prisoners sentenced to more than three years and one day and above are classified as national prisoners. Since accused lands corporal member from his sentence to suffer the indeterminate sentence of six years of prison correctional as minimum and 12 years of prison mayor as maximum, he is considered as national prisoner. Pursuant to OCA Circular Number 40-2003. And that was the ruling. Five months later, on Valentine's Day of 2021, presidential spokesman Harry Roque said that Durante had linked the fate of the Philippines-United States Visiting Forces Agreement to, quote, behavior of Americans toward Filipinos and said regarding the EDCA, remember that was our cooperation agreement, this was the first case. I think that the president wants this to stop, says Roque. He needs to think about rather to drop the EDCA also because that is the legal basis that allows American soldiers and equipment to remain in our country. <sighs> my audience, this case, as we conclude, I just wanna say to my love bug, my soul sister, Jennifer Lade, we remember you yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever and always. Born November 4th, 1987, and resting on 6 October 11th of 2014. My audience, thank you so much for tuning in to the season two finale of A Hateful Homicide. We did it, we got through 14 cases. I know sometimes it gets heavy. I know sometimes it gets hard to hear where justice isn't served, but we're gonna keep fighting for these victims to make sure that they have voices. And that's why season three will be kicking back off on April 2nd of 2022 at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, beginning with season three, episode one, the murder of Malaysia Booker. In that season um, three, episode one premiere, there's gonna be some great special guests and other people to come. Again, my audience, I really appreciate your love and support with this and just, I am so blown away. A Hateful Homicide will be also having a website coming soon that I'll be able to share with y'all. And please, please think about the question I asked. Do you think that Joseph Scott Pemberton was released because of the fact that the Philippines needed a COVID-19 vaccine. Again, thank you. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and use the hashtags I Hate Homicide, Ah, True Crime Podcasts, Investigative Journalism, 
Trans Awareness Suspenseful Saturdays. Again, thank you so much for tuning in to season two, the finale, an officer and gentleman. And I look forward to connecting with you all again in April. Bye-bye.